It's crazy to me that it's already December. The, the ice rinks open upstairs and the decorations are out. And I don't listen to the radio anymore, but Spotify has been telling me that I need to start listening to playlists about Santa and snow. Uh, this is the time of the year where we all remember Will Farrell's lowest point in his acting career. <laughs> that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing it loud for all to hear. I might have some issues with Elf. The thing is, though, I often feel like I'm forced into Christmas. It, the build-up just, it's like there's something off about it. It just happens and there's no, there is no build-up. I get caught up in this rising tide of consumer hype about sentimental vibes and cosy Christmas trees and chestnuts roasting on an open fire, but the Christmas of Hallmark jingles with hollow sleigh bells dashing through a forest of dying Christmas trees. Come January, the pine needles, which were once lush and green, turn brittle brown. And whatever warm, sentimental feelings that we had mustered up for the holiday spirit inevitably seem to wither and deflate as we pack them away in boxes to pull out again next year. I don't know about you, but I want a joy that lasts longer than January. And I want a Christmas that's more meaningful than just some songs about cheer. We're in the second week of our Advent series, in the second week of Advent, which is a season that awakens our longings for something more. Advent awakens within us the longing to know the joy of Jesus. Advent reorients us to the redemptive work that God is doing in and throughout history. And Advent points us to the promise of Jesus' birth and to the assurance that he will come again. This year we're tracing the different aspects of joy in the, the uh, Jesus' infant narrative in Luke's Gospel. And we're looking at different uh, aspects of joy. So last week, Preston uh, told us about the joy of anticipation. How after 400 years of silence, God was at work again. God was raising up a prophet called John the Baptist, who would have the spirit of Elijah and who would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. God is on the move, a prophet is at hand, and dawn is about to break. And this week we take one more step towards that dawn as we look to the joy of anticipation, or from the joy of anticipation to the joy of assurance. Now, I have to admit that it's been difficult for me to prepare a sermon this week on joy. Uh, it's, it's difficult to think about joy when there's this ominous veil of fog just draped over the city. And it's, it's difficult to consider joy when light gets snuffed out by a dense and heavy cloud. Uh, Alistair just mentioned that as a church, we've been talking a lot about joy. In fact, this is our second series on joy this year. So we're kind of joy freaks. Um, <laughs> But what are we to make of joy when we're swallowed up in a fog? In the Christmas carol, Silent Night, there's the line which says, all is warm, all is bright, but what if all is not warm and bright for us? What if 2017 has left us battered and wounded and scarred and defeated? I know that I'm not the only one in this room who will see an empty chair around the table at Christmas this year. I'm not the only one who lost a loved one in 2017. 
So as we, con 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 as we continue in our Advent series today, I want to explore the question, where is joy in the midst of the veil? Where is joy in the midst of the veil? And I want to suggest to you that the joy is in assurance. So in an homage to Roger Revel, I have three alliterative points for you uh, as we explore this text. The first is John's exaltation. Second, our examination. And thirdly, Elizabeth's explanation. So exaltation, examination, and explanation. So we'll start with John's explanation. Uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. And if you don't have a Bible, everything I say will be on the screen behind me. Uh, so beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So last week we looked at Zechariah in the temple when Gabriel showed up and uh, we saw that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were without children. In fact, Scripture says that Elizabeth, who was old in age, was barren. But as Preston told us last week, to a barren womb, God gave a child. And to a barren people, Israel, God gave a prophet. A prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord. We're now six months after that encounter, and Gabriel's at it again. He's meeting someone else. This time, he's meeting with Mary. In the passage just before this one, we read in verse 30, uh, when Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. After 400 years of silence, God is up to something. God is raising up a prophet, and he's raising up a saviour too. And now Mary has come to find her relative Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth are gathered together, these two women through whom God has chosen to bring truth and restoration to the world. And Mary arrived at the house and greeted Elizabeth. And picking up in verse 41, we read, And when Elizabeth had heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist leaped for joy. This wasn't a little prance or a skip. No, the strength of the words actually convey a deeply powerful exaltation, an extreme joy and gladness. It's as if to say, yes, this is really happening. This is happening. This, this leaping, this exaltation, is like when you've been longing and expecting something for a long time and it actually happens. It's that distinct moment when disbelief wears off. This is happening? Yes, this is really happening. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, 
I've, I've loved dogs. Um, my mum has told me stories of how when I was little, I'd run up to random dogs in the park and just fling my arms around their necks, completely oblivious to the thought that they could bite me. Uh, I loved dogs and I always wanted one, but growing up in London, the, the original London, not your London, uh, <laughs> growing up in London, we never had the room for a dog. Or at least that's what my parents said. Um, they had three boys, so maybe they didn't want a dog too. But when I was 11 though, my family moved to the States, the, that promised land of opportunity, where I seized my opportunity to get a dog. <laughs> and I can still remember the excitement I felt when I was 12 years old and we got Cooper. I was over the moon. There's actually a, a picture of him from a couple years ago. This was really happening. This is really happening. Those same words resounded around Zimbabwe just a couple weeks ago as Robert Mugabe finally stepped down after 37 years in power. The people in the streets of Harare were leaping for joy as they threw a street party celebrating the fall of Mugabe. They leaped for joy because this is really happening. And John the Baptist leaped for joy. At the sound of Mary's greeting, John the Baptist couldn't contain himself in joy. Exceeding joy came upon the not yet born prophet who was to prepare the way for the Lord. An unborn prophet recognized the voice of the woman who had birthed the coming Messiah. Long before John ever baptized anyone in the Jordan River, long before he ever called out to Israel to repent, long before John even breathed his first breath and uttered his first cry, this prophet who came to prepare the way of the Lord exalted in his own mother's womb over his prenatal encounter with the unborn Christ. Mary's child would be called Holy, the Son of the Most High. But before Jesus was ever laid in a manger, and before shepherds and wise men ever came to visit this newborn king, as yet one unborn, Jesus was seen for who he really was. And the prophet who would prepare his way was leaping in the womb. Divinity was being knit together in Mary's womb, and the one who would announce Christ's coming, though still himself not yet born, was already making room, and was declaring in his womb the coming of the Lord. John exalted and leaped for joy. This is a joy of gladness, deep gladness, one of expectation that God is moving, rooted in a firm gladness in the promises of God. God is coming through in his promise to raise up a Messiah. This is the joy of assurance. And with that in mind, I want to turn now to our second point, an examination of joy, specifically this joy of assurance. After all, it's well and good that John the Baptist, you know, this prophet, leaped for joy and that he experienced this joy of assurance. But what about us? Where is joy in the midst of the veil? There's a progression and a logic to our series through Advent as we trace these different aspects of joy. So last week we looked at the joy of anticipation, this week the joy of assurance, next week the joy of faithfulness, and in our fourth week we'll look at the joy of heaven or the joy of glory. And all these themes, these aspects build on each other. So the joy of assurance builds upon the joy of anticipation. In fact, the joy of assurance is the positive outcome to the joy of anticipation. 
We, when we anticipate something and hope for something with eagerness and expectation, there are only really two possible outcomes. We either experience fulfillment or we experience forfeit. Either what we're hoping for happens or it doesn't. And we live in a world that is deeply acquainted with forfeit. We know all too well the feeling of a hope denied. In fact, perhaps we know it too well because it's difficult to hope today. We've, heard, we've learned that hoping hurts. and We're promised so much hope everywhere we turn. But so often it's cheap hope, an empty hope, hope that doesn't measure up. We live in a society that peddles hope to everything we do and everywhere we go, in new toys and shows, new gadgets and relationships, new ideas and groups and plans. The hopes that tell us something different can happen. Buy this new phone and you'll be cool and up to date. Watch this show and you'll be amused and entertained. Date this person and you'll find satisfaction. Get this degree and you'll get your dream job. Believe this philosophy and you'll live a good life. But how's that working out for us? I mean, it's good for a little while, but the phone is old next week. And come Monday, we've already finished the show. And that person turns out not to be a very good life raft for us. And that dream job was already taken. And the philosophy doesn't quite sit right. Uh, one of the hopes, our hopes are conditioned by doing and getting, experiencing and attaining, recovering and amending. But it hurts to hope. Our hopes get crushed. We know the pain of forfeit, the pain of heartbreak. I mentioned just before the joy I experienced when I was 12, when my family got Cooper. And Cooper was such a good dog. He was my dog. And he brought me so much joy and fun and laughter. And he was there with me in some of my lowest moments too. I could lean on him and cry. And he would just wag his tail. But Cooper died this past March. And then in May, my grandmother had a stroke. And for a whole month, my family went through this emotional roller coaster where my grandmother was admitted into hospice with just days to live, only to wake up on Sunday morning and go home. She was the second person to leave this hospice. And then she died a week later. The, the sting of death isn't like the sting of a bumblebee. Death's sting feels more like the, the bludgeoning of a mallet. Where is joy in the midst of the veil? Where is joy in the midst of the veil? There's a, a saying people sometimes say in churches to try and make people feel better and to lift their spirits when you're in the veil. Um, and when people say it, they, they mean well, I think. But the words end up hurting more than they help. And the words are this. God won't give you more than you can handle. 
And people mean well when they say them. But it's just sentimental, uplifting fluff. There's nothing to it. It's what people say when they don't know what to say. But they're uncomfortable with saying nothing. And they're uncomfortable with fitting in grief. And so they say words that they think sound pretty good, kind of, and it makes them at least feel like they're encouraging the person when they speak. But it's really not. I'm, I'm thankful that no one said that to me this past year. Because these words are hollow and expressed in ungrounded, wishful thinking. They are not words of genuine hope. They are words of judgment and despair. And to make it even worse, it's just simply not true. God won't give you more than you can handle. That's just not true. And it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, I think I know where this comes from. It seems like someone actually took a verse from Scripture and chopped off the beginning and the end and just flipped a word. So I think it actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But that's about temptation, not grief. That verse isn't about being under the veil. It's about overcoming the veil. It's about overcoming sin. There's a great distinction between enduring and escaping temptation versus enduring the circumstances of life. God won't give you more than you can handle. Really? Now, how about we actually try testing that and applying it to Scripture to see whether it actually holds up? Uh, how about we try telling that to Mary? Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, a virgin girl betrothed in marriage who divinely became pregnant. We see in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 34, just after Gabriel comes to speak to Mary about how she's going to have this son, she says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now Mary lived in a society where infidelity in marriage was punishable by death. Yet God made a virgin pregnant. Every other instance in the Bible where a woman gets pregnant sex was involved. That's biology. I mean, that's just how it works. And there are some weird and scandalous stories in the Bible about infidelity and pregnancy. But that wasn't the case with Mary. Mary was faithful. Faithful to Joseph and faithful to God. And the conception of Jesus was miraculous. It was divine. God made a virgin pregnant. And it put Mary's life in danger. But God won't give you more than you can handle. Really? That's funny because he can certainly put your life in danger. Mary went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth. And it well might have been just for the own safety of her life. God may well let you face more than you can handle in life. He may well allow you to suffer loss and hardship. He may lead you through the valley of the shadow of death or allow you to receive a fatal diagnosis. And he may allow your wildest dreams and hopes and plans to come to ruin. And I don't have an answer to that. 
I can't defend why God lets bad things happen to us. Why God allows people to die unexpectedly or to suffer for countless years. But I can say two things with confidence. God will never leave you or forsake you. In your darkest hour, God is still there. And no matter how hard life gets, God will always bring someone alongside you if you let him. I'll I'll say those again. God will never leave you or forsake you. In your darkest hour, God is still there. And no matter how hard life gets, God will always bring someone alongside you if you let him. And with that in mind, I want to turn now to our third and last consideration, and that's Elizabeth's explanation. Look with me again at the beginning of verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment in what was spoken to her from the Lord. John the Baptist leaped, but his exaltation must be heard with Elizabeth's declaration. The Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth, and she prophesied over Mary. Mary is to be praised above all other women, and the fruit of her womb is to be praised, because the child she will give birth to is the Christ. As Gabriel said earlier, he will be called Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see, the fruit of Mary's womb is the fruit of King David. The same author of the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts, wherein he actually uses the same word to explain how Jesus is the descendant, is the fulfillment of King David's reign. Jesus is David's fruit, or David's seed. Elizabeth sees that Jesus, this child being knit together in Mary's womb, is the long-promised saviour king of Israel. He is the promised king of the Jews, and his kingdom will have no end. But Jesus isn't just the fruit of David. Jesus hasn't come to only set Israel free. You see, in Luke chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is not just David's descendant, he's also Adam's descendant. The fruit of Mary's womb is not just the seed of David. The fruit of Mary's womb is the fruit of Eden. Eden, God's garden where humanity dwelt in the presence of God. Eden, where God's shalom, God's peace reigned and overflowed. Eden, where humanity ate the forbidden fruit. When Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of humanity fell, and we were separated from the presence of God. But Elizabeth tells us that Mary is to be praised above all women, and the fruit of her womb is to be praised. Because now, by the faithful obedience of Mary, 
a fruit was being born that would rid the world of the curse of sin. Mary is to be appraised above Eve because Mary's fruit is a living fruit. Mary's fruit is a child, a king, the promised saviour of the world. Mary's fruit, the fruit of Mary's womb, is the better fruit of Eden, the fruit of peace and the fruit of shalom. This Jesus, this saviour, will extend peace to all humanity. This Jesus, our saviour, will bring peace to all the land. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the child in Mary's womb. This is why John the Baptist leaped for joy. The prophet who came to prepare the way for the Lord was leaping in the womb. This is the joy of gladness. The expectation that God is moving, rooted in a firm gladness in the promises of God. God is coming through on his promise to bring a Messiah. And then Elizabeth says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment in what was promised to her from the Lord, in what was spoken to her from the Lord. And this word blessed as it occurs in this context conveys the idea that it is well with Mary. Mary possesses the state of it being well with her. It is well with Mary, Mary whose life is in danger, Mary whose world just got turned upside down. It is well with her. It is well with Mary because she believed what God promised to her would happen. God would fulfill his promise. So where is joy in the midst of the veil? The joy of assurance rests in the character of God the character of God who transcends our present circumstance, the character of God who keeps his word and fulfills his promise. The joy of assurance rests in the character of God who keeps his promise even when his people give up hope, who shines forth light into even the darkest of night, who loves us so much that he came into this world to join us in the veil in order to lift the veil. God is coming through on his promise to restore the world to himself. The fruit of Mary's womb is the better fruit of Eden. And Jesus is coming to reign over his kingdom in peace and justice. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Dawn is about to break and joy comes with the morning. <laughs>